Good morning. Great to have you song leading this morning, Brother Don. It's a throwback to the 1980s. And uh, Don was our song leader and pianist and taught a uh, few of us to lead music, some doing better as students than others, but he, uh, he took the time to teach us anyway. We're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians. It's been a profitable time um, for me, and I trust for you as well. And we're going to continue in uh, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. These past weeks have been studies in the Apostle Paul's sensitivity to others' needs. We sang that, um, that song, There is none like thee, Lord Jesus, uh, for the brokenhearted, for the heavy laden, for him that thirsteth. And um, Paul was sensitive to others' needs. It's, um, it's really beautiful, um, again, for me to realize uh, this thread through these last chapters in um, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul had the area of um, marriage. He was free to marry, and he yielded that to the Lord. He gave that up to the Lord and said in uh, verse 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself. And in verse 35, that you might serve the Lord without distraction. So there's Paul being sensitive to others' needs. He could serve the Lord better single. And so uh, he gave up that, um, uh, that liberty that he had in Christ. He um, had a number of blood-bought liberties in chapter 8 that he, um, that he referred to. And he gave those up for the benefit of the weaker brother. He said, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So there's Paul, sensitive and... Um, denying himself for the sake of others. Last week, we looked at um, chapter 9, and Paul had the right, we hope that, um, that we showed that, uh, to material support by those he helped spiritually. Paul's response to that was, nevertheless, we've not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. I'm going to set that right aside. I'm going to leave it so that we don't hinder the preaching of the gospel. It's going to go out to you Corinthians even without your support, without your material support. And uh, this week we're going to look at uh, abandoning cultural expectations for the sake of the gospel and the second part of that is exercising the discipline to make that so. Um, Paul says um, that he's made himself a servant to all that he might win the more. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing on this. What beautiful truths, what tremendous truths you communicated through your apostle, your sent one, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you might impart those to us for action that we might take, um, uh, take action and make changes in our own lives. We ask in your name. Amen. So let's, um, let's read, starting in verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. 
And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul starts this section by saying that, um, though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. We mentioned that last week as we looked at the, um, the beginning of the chapter, and um, we see that uh, Paul was free from obligation to all men, to any men. He was disentangled from earthly ties and duty and from the control of any earthly headquarters. He represented no religious order. He wrote to the, to the Galatians, uh, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So um, Paul was God's man. He was free from the, um, the uh, controls of, um, of earthly uh, headquarters. He was as free to do the will of God and to teach all the word of God uh, because of this, um, this freedom in Christ. Yet in the same breath, he obligated himself to all men as a servant. He was very much a servant to the Corinthians. He would write them in his later epistle, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. He was a servant to the Corinthians and also to the Romans. He, uh, he wrote to the Romans, um, after placing himself into debt to his fellows, I am a debtor to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Had you met the Apostle Paul during his, um, uh, his service to the Lord, um, he would have had a debt to you, to pay you. And that debt was simply the gospel. He, uh, he felt uh, uh, constraint, he felt a burden, a necessity to give you that gospel. He was a, he was a debtor, he was, uh, he was poor, he, he was trying to pay this debt. And when I, actually he was very rich. But 
he places himself under the um, servanthood, under the mastery of others for this very specific purpose, to win them to the Lord. If Paul could yield his personal rights without sacrificing divine truths, he would do so to win souls to Christ. How did Paul make himself a servant to all? Well, he gives us four examples, four illustrations in the following verses. He says in verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew. We think that was, would have been easy for a former Pharisee and a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, and yet, um, I think it was a challenge and a chore for Paul to be um, sorting between uh, what is really Jewish culture and what is, um, is uh, really legalism. But um, he not only became a Jew, uh, as a Jew to win Jews, but he asked others to do the same. In Acts 16, verse 3, Paul wanted to have Timothy go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. It was not a matter of law-keeping, keeping the law of Moses that required Jews to be circumcised, but instead it was, it was um, to keep from giving offense to those Jews to whom Paul and Timothy sought to bring the gospel. And a second way that um, Paul had become as a Jew was in Thessalonica, as we see in Acts 17, and in Ephesus, we see in Acts 18, that Paul began his preaching in the synagogues. He'd enter a, a brand new city, city where he'd never been before, where did he go? He went to the Jews. He went to the synagogue. He went to the Jew first, to those who were receptive to the gospel and those uh, categorically rejected uh, his message, then he was free to go to the Gentiles. But um, in that sense, he was a Jew uh, to the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that he might win those who are under the law. Paul already said that he was um, making himself as a Jew to the Jews, so how is this different? Though, aren't those under the law uh, Jews? Bill McDonald in his commentary offers this insight. He says the Jews in the first part of this verse may refer to national and cultural customs and uh, where here under the law he is referring to the religious life. Paul had been born under the law. He sought to gain God's favor by keeping the Ten Commandments and the 600 plus other commandments in the Old Testament. But he found that he was not able to obey them. The law instead showed him what a sinner he was and how he needed a savior. Paul recognized that the purpose of the law was to show how sinful he was. It, um, it condemned him for his sin instead of uh, applauding him for his attempted obedience. Paul trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross as payment for the uh, offenses, for the wrongs that he had done. 
and uh, the Lord saved him. Paul knew that the law was not the way of salvation, and he soon learned that it was not the rule of life for the new believer either. The believer is not under the law, but is under grace. This doesn't mean that the believer can do whatever he pleases, but under grace, the believer seeks to leave a li live a life that is pleasing to the Lord in appreciation for him and for his, um, his boundless love, for his grace through, um, through his sacrifice on the cross. Men will do for love, men will do out of love what they would not do out of fear. And this is the believer's motivation is out of love. So how did Paul act as one under the law? There were matters of moral indifference where I'm guessing that Paul um, restrained himself from eating pork and shellfish uh, in deference, in respect, and sympathy with the Jews because they were under the law. They would not eat it, um, seeking to, to um, win favor with God through that. Perhaps he, he um, refrained from working on uh, Saturdays also on the Sabbath. So he, um, he became like those under the law. Third, he um, became to those who were without the law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that he might win those who were without law, who were those who were without law. These are not outlaws, but instead they are Gentiles. In Romans 2, 14, Paul reminded the Romans that the Jews did not have the law. When they sinned, they did so without uh, an awareness of the Ten Commandments. Paul complied with Gentile habits and customs wherever he could without being disloyal to his Lord Jesus. Though he acted as a Gentile, he was not without law toward God. In other words, he couldn't do anything that he pleased. Rather, he was under law toward Christ to love, to honor, and to obey, not by the law of Moses, but by the law of love for Christ. Fourth, to the weak, he became as weak that he might win the weak. Luke Robertson introduced us to the weak brother in his teaching on chapter eight. The weak brother is one with a hypersensitive conscience. It's working overtime. He's overscrupulous about fundamentally unimportant matters like eating meat, especially that offered to idols. Paul was willing to be as a weak brother, eating only vegetables if the eating of meat offended the, um, the weak brother. 
and uh, hopefully we'll hear more about how to um, live with the weak brother, how to minister to the weak brother in the next chapter. In verse uh, 22, Paul restates his purpose. He says, I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Could, could Paul really save men and women? No, salvation belongs to the Lord. But by, uh, by the Lord's grace, those who serve the Lord Jesus can so closely identify with him in this work that the Lord allows us to, to use that term, that I will save men. We preach the gospel of salvation. We have in um, thinking about self-denial, the supreme example in our Lord Jesus, who emptied himself and stooped to earth. He became uh, a man and uh, took the form of a servant and um, subjected himself to crucifixion on the cross that he might save many, that he might save many. Has he saved you? Have you come to the Lord Jesus as, uh, as the God in heaven, the eternal Father who came to earth and suffered and bled for your sins? Have you trusted in him? Have you placed your full confidence in his work on the cross that he pay that penalty, that I don't have to do a thing for my salvation, but I can rest, I can trust in him, I can sit down, the work is done, the work is finished, and uh, I, can, I can take that to the bank, I'll take it to the, to the Father, Lord, your son paid the penalty for my sin. Are you trusting in him? Have you, uh, have you trusted in him for your soul's salvation? We who are saved can follow the Lord Jesus in his self-emptying, self-denial. And in verse 23, Paul writes, Now I do this for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Paul was glad to become all things to all men, that he might have a share in this proclamation of the gospel. He didn't want any cultural differences, any racial bias, any uh, uh, nationalism to stand in the way of his proclamation of the gospel. We have illustrations of becoming all things to all men. I've got, um, I've got three or four of them. The first is um, the Moravian missionaries. And uh, many of you are familiar with the two young Moravians who were burdened for the slaves in the Caribbean, uh, Johann Dober and David Nietzschmann from Hernhut, Germany, were called in 1732 to minister to the African slaves on the Caribbean islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix. After being sent out by Count Nicholas Zinzendorf 
they traveled to Copenhagen, where their plan initially met with strong opposition. They were interviewed. When asked by a court official how they would support themselves, Nietzsche replied, we will work as slaves among the slaves. But, said the official, that's impossible. You're not allowed to work as a slave. Very well, Nietzsche replied, I am a carpenter and I will work my trade. Eventually they were able to get passage on a ship to St. Thomas where they lived frugally and preached two years to the slaves where they enjoyed a success in preaching the gospel. They were willing to sell themselves into slavery to reach the slaves. There was no other way to reach them, they, they thought. These men, like the Apostle Paul, were willing to forsake the comforts of their culture and their country in order to win men to Christ, even to, to the extent of, uh, of uh, mortgaging their future, selling out their future on earth. A second illustration of our becoming all things to all men is Hudson Taylor. Many will recognize his name. Hudson Taylor had a burden from his um, early days for the lost in China. Imagine China, millions of uh, people living in darkness <clears throat> without the Lord, without the gospel, without hope. And so this, um, this burden continually grew until he was able to, uh, to get to China. It was August 1855. Hudson Taylor had been in China for a year and a half. <clears throat> he found openness among the Chinese, but he also found barriers because of his foreign manners. Some responded to the gospel, but most were attracted to his funny dress, the way he dressed, the way he, um, uh, the way he dressed. Others were openly hostile to Western intrusion. They didn't want him there. Hudson Taylor knew that he had to immerse himself in the Chinese culture to gain a wider hearing for the gospel. And so I pick up here in his biography, that night, he took the step he had been prayerfully considering, called in a barber, and had himself so transformed in appearance that his own mother would hardly have known him. To put on Chinese dress without shaving his head was, a compar was comparatively a simple matter, but Hudson Taylor went to all lengths, leaving only enough of the fair, curly hair to grow into the queue of a Chinaman. He had prepared a dye, moreover, with which he darkened his remaining hair to match the long black braid that at first must, must do duty for his own. Then in the morning he put on as best he could the loose unaccustomed garments and appeared for the first time in the gown and satin shoes of a teacher or man of scholarly class. How it all opened up after this step had been taken Hudson Taylor hardly knew himself for the same person who had so often been tried by petty annoyances and more serious hindrances to his work by curious and excited crowds. 
Plenty of people still followed him whenever he became known as a foreigner, and it was not difficult to gather an audience to listen to the gospel. But the rowdy element seemed somehow to have disappeared with his European dress, and if he wished to pass unnoticed, he was able to, even on the busiest streets. This, of course, greatly lessened the strain of being much alone among the people, and at the same time gave him access to a more respectable, serious-minded class. Not suspected even of being a European until his speech betrayed him, he had a far truer, more natural point of view from which to study conditions around him and found himself coming into touch in a new way with people and things Chinese. It was natural now to adopt their point of view as he had not before, and as instinctively he began to identify himself with those he had hitherto occupied uh, in the position of a foreigner. Now he was with them in all outward respects, dressing, living, eating as they did, and greatly lessening the cost and difficulty of providing for his needs in doing so. He relates the, um, the trip to the barber to his sister in a letter shortly after. He said, it is a very sore thing to have one's head shaved for the, for the first time, especially if the skin is irritable with prickly heat. And I can assure you that the subsequent application of hair dye for five or six hours, litharge, one part, quick lime, freshly slaked, and water enough to make a cream, does not do much to soothe the irritation. But when it comes to combing out the remaining hair, which has been allowed to grow longer than usual, the climax is reached. But there are no gains without pains, and certainly if suffering for a thing makes it dear, I shall regard my cue when I attain one with no, amount of, no small amount of pride and affection. For the change he had made after so much prayer was soon found to affect more than his outward appearance. The Chinese felt it, the Europeans felt it, and above all, uh, he felt it, putting an intangible barrier between him and foreign associations and throwing him back as ever before, as never before, upon the people of his adoption. This, while he rejoiced in it for his work's sake, was not without its sting. The covert sneer or undisguised contempt of the European community he found less difficult to bear than the disapproval of his foreign missionaries, fellow missionaries. But this also had to be faced, for he was practically alone in his convictions, and certainly the only one to carry them into effect. The more he suffered for them, however, the more they deepened. The more he gave himself to the Chinese in consequence, the more new and joy, a wonderful joy, the Lord flooded in his soul. Hudson Taylor made himself as Chinese. The, um, the clothes that he wore, the, um, the way he had his hair, the food that he ate, the language that he spoke, he, um, he would learn several dialects in his, um, in his ministry to the Chinese. He became all things to all men that he might, by all means, win some. Well, 
you understand how missionaries would, would do this for the sake of those they seek to reach. But uh, here I am in my 60s and the Lord hasn't called me to the mission field. So what does that mean to me to become all things to all men? We have the example of um, Chuck Smith who founded the um, Calvary Chapels He um, had a burden for the Lord. I'll let him tell the story out of his book, Harvest. In the wilderness of Galilee, where the plains meet the mountains folding in upon them, there is a beautiful but brief phenomenon. I wish that Eddie were here to, uh, to, to amen that. For just a few weeks every year, everyone, uh, beginning one, early spring morning, you can look out on what had been a plain and see a meadow covered with a canopy of wildflowers extending as far as the eye could see. Poppies, lilacs, buttercups, all radiating color and dancing in the wind. It literally happens overnight. One morning, Kay, his wife, and I looked into the California streets and on the beaches and we beheld another radiantly colorful sight. Human forms extending as far as the eye could see. The countercultural revolution of the 60s had begun. And the new citizens were hippies, heads, and trippers. Their colorful outfits belied the deeper problem that they represented. God was trying to tell us something as we looked out on that field. We faced the problem of a gap of culture and thought that uh, culture and thought that stood between our generations. I was brought up in old world piety compared to the fast track rebellion of the hippies. How could my wife and I cross that gulf? The Lord clearly impressed our hearts, reach out in love. Now we knew that love could never be contrived with a group as sensitive and perceptive as that one. So to quote my wife, we saturated the air with prayer. Kay and I could feel growing inside our hearts, almost independent of our own efforts, a growing burden of love and concern from God for these young people. With love would come the necessary understanding. Then we would be equipped to minister to the needs of these estranged youths. Could this be what God had been preparing us for all these years? We were looking at fields rich with harvest, dislocated souls, ripe for almost anything from Buddha to Christ and only waiting for the chance to commit their lives. The cultural shift had happened quickly between our generation and theirs, like the wildflowers suddenly appearing on the Galilean plains. How could we penetrate it? Kay and I would often drive to a coffee shop in Huntington Beach and park our car. We would sit and look at those kids and pray for them where others seemed to be repulsed by these dirty, long-haired freaks, we could only see great emptiness of their hearts that caused them to turn to drugs for the answers to life that we knew only Jesus could supply, but how to reach them. Then one day it happened. We met several youths who were hippies, yet they had a different glow on their faces. They were Christians 
converted in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district through a communal ministry called the House of Acts. They were perfect representatives of their generation, having been to all the human beings in Golden Gate Park, Grateful Dead concerts, acid tests, whole earth festivals, and communal experiments. They had done it all. Then one day they saw the bottom of the elevator shaft within their own souls. They glimpsed the ultimate emptiness of their pursuit and finally called upon Christ to be the center and Lord of their lives. We invited a couple of these youths to move into our home with us in Newport Beach. <laughs> I don't know if you can uh, uh, imagine what that would have been like. They soon moved some of their friends in as well, and it became sort of a communal house for a while. Our four kids accepted them, and we began to understand their disillusionment with the church and the adult world they called the straight society. They, they had lost all faith in any values that preceded their generation. They took it upon themselves to find newer and higher spiritual truths and begin a revolution. We started establishing Christian, Christian communal homes to hold them. Our own, their own zeal was contagious as they shared the rich truths of their newfound faith. By their zealous sharing about Jesus to those on the beaches, in the parks, and on the streets, they filled the area with the reality and truth of Christ. And he lists the names of, of uh, some of these young men. Um, this urgent and timely ministry took off like a rocket. It was irrepressible. God decided to use those people whose lives had been a social engineer's nightmare. And my wife and I witnessed the, this miracle time and again. Ironically, the only resistance we encountered to this move of God came from the church itself. Those from our midst who had grown up with church backgrounds, those from the straight society. The sudden infusion of rebellious youths met predictable opposition. Our challenge was to overcome what most churches had not, namely their insistence on respectability, conformity, and a judgmental attitude toward anything that departed from the norm. Many of our members rallied to the challenge, feeding off the zeal of the hippie converts. But there were still some who resisted and disdained these newest members of our church who showed up with long hair, bells on the hems of their jeans, bare feet, and who otherwise looked like wildflowers in their great diffusion of dress inspired by American Indian or Asian tribal styles. It was wildly creative. But it was also threatening, especially to those with young children who did not want them emulating the hippies. Perhaps this involves interesting symbolism, but I think that the last barrier to go down in our church was the bare feet barrier. When we got beyond that, we were home free. The pivotal incident centered on a wide expanse of brand new carpet that we just put in. Those who had been inwardly protesting the hippies 
finally found a target to vent their discontent. Dirty feet, soil carpets. And these carpets cost a lot of money. Besides, who wants to see dirt marks on brand new carpet? They took it upon themselves early one Sunday morning to hang up a sign reading, no bare feet allowed. For some reason, I happened to reach the church earlier than usual and was in time to take down the sign. It was sad to see division over things this trivial. It was also sad to see what really lay behind the outward demarcations of division, a we-they polarity instead of love. So after the meetings that day, um, Chuck Smith had a meeting with the, um, with the leaders of the church. And he, um, uh, he rebuked them. He said, um, this kind of action uh, today puts a real question mark across our faith. And he said this to the, um, to the leaders. He said, <clears throat> if because of our plush carpeting, we have to close the door to one young person who has bare feet, then I'm personally in favor of ripping out all the carpeting and having concrete floors. If because of dirty jeans, we have to say to one young person, I'm sorry, you can't come into church tonight, your jeans are too dirty, then I'm in favor of getting rid of upholstered pews. Let's get benches or steel chairs, something we can wash off. But let's not ever, ever close the door to anyone because of dress or the way he looks. Calvary Chapel jumped over that last hurdle. We were ready to move ahead. Before too long, I was sending people out to plant other Calvary chapels in other parts of California, as well as across the country. Many of the people we sent out were youth extracted from the very counterculture that our no bare feet policy would have prohibited. What a tragedy that would have been if we closed the doors on them. I'm sure that the flow of God's grace would have gone from a gush to a trickle if we'd been that shallow. We have leaders in our assemblies who were raised out of that hippie generation. And so uh, we, we feel the effects of this ourselves. But um, uh, Chuck Smith and his wife were willing to step outside their cultural box, their comfort zone, and to become all things for all men. So they are close to home. Costa Mesa, California. Let's, uh, let's emulate them. What is your culture? Your clothing, your language, your habits, even those prejudices that you carry that help make you comfortable in your daily life. Are you willing to step outside those to reach others with the gospel? A year or so ago, um, there was a, a couple here for a uh, fellowship dinner, fellowship lunch, some kind of lunch. And uh, they were African-American. They, um, uh, they were visitors. They were not friends of anyone that we knew. And uh, they, they sat at the table, and they were kind of distant, kind of uh, disconnected, a little uneasy. And uh, I, I felt kind of bad for them, kind of sorry for them. but. Uh, I can talk about him because he's not here. Jake. 
came up to the people, and he stuck his hand out to them, and he said, hi, I'm Jake. <laughs> and they, uh, he disarmed them. They uh, probably didn't know what, what to do. But uh, as I sat eating my lunch, this couple was laughing and joking uh, like family. And uh, um, Jake had taken that, that step. He'd crossed the, the line, and he'd welcomed them. And I, I, uh, I thank the Lord for that. I want to uh, I want a drink of that same uh, fountain. Would you be willing to enter a home with different cultural manners and standards? Would you be willing to be the only foreigner in that home? I think of a Muslim home. And uh, someone correct me if I'm, if I'm off base here, but uh, you don't show the bottom of your shoe to a Muslim. That's offensive. You don't eat with your left hand. That's dirty. Those are cultural things, but what about religious things? We shouldn't endorse caricatures of Muhammad. Um, the French uh, bore the brunt of that in Paris a few years ago. Um, we saw it in Texas uh, a number of months ago. Um, that people took delight in uh, offending Muslims by, by drawing pictures of, uh, of Muhammad. It was inflammatory, it was unnecessary. Why, why do that? So we want to proclaim Christ. We can do that without um, inflaming and sensing these um, uh, neighbors, uh, our Muslim neighbors. And by the way, do tell them about Christ. There was a missionary years ago who um, counseled a conference, a missionary conference. He said, don't tell them that Jesus is God. You'll lose your hearing. Brothers and sisters, tell them Jesus is God the Son. That's our message. And, uh, and so we shouldn't hold back from, from the truth for the sake of winning souls. In our effort to become all things to all men, don't forget the one to whom we want to bring them, to win them. Years ago, uh, friends invited me to um, Modesto, someplace in the Central Valley, for a wedding. They were um, adherents of an Eastern religion. And uh, so I was honored, I, I was pleased to go. And um, it was at a big hall, a big auditorium, and in the lobby of the auditorium, they, um, they offered me a head covering. And I knew from my friendship with them that this was a required symbol of respect for their holy book. And so I told my friend, I said, I will not do anything that will um, betray, will compromise, will take away from my loyalty in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I feel that this does. I was hoping they'd understand, and they'd say, well, that's fine, come on in. You wait in the lobby. And so I waited uh, through the wedding ceremony uh, inside, uh, and um, uh, they, they would not accept that. But 
I had to draw the line. I had to take a stand and say, um, I will not do that because it will reflect disloyalty on my Lord Jesus. And we need to do the same. If, um, if we're seeking to win men to become all things to all men, we must do so in a way that doesn't compromise the truth. Many of us do well eating a meat and potatoes diet. Some of us on a noodles only diet, we could go pretty far. Some on a rice only diet. But I'm exhorting you, encouraging you today, let not our assembly restrict ourselves to a meat and potatoes outreach or noodles only outreach. Let's expand our vision for uh, other cultures. Next in our passage, in our um, scripture this morning, Paul Paul exhorts the Corinthians to exercise the discipline needed to proclaim the gospel. There's a demand for discipline. He says in verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? The Christian life is a race. It requires discipline. The, um, the swimmer, Michael Phelps, the um, the long distance, the Olympic um, marathoner, they dedicate their lives to competition. And I, I wish I had the uh, routine, Michael Phelps' routine, but uh, he'd spend a couple hours in the pool before breakfast. And then he'd be back in the pool in the afternoon and back in the pool at night, um, swimming and swimming. It requires dedication. It, require, it calls for strenuous effort. It demands concentration and determination and definiteness of purpose. Runners all run, only one wins. Paul underscoring the thrill of victory in that, uh, in that win. What is the prize? The prize is a reward for faithful service. That's what Paul is, is um, presenting here. And he says in verse 24, uh, run in such a way that you may obtain it. Paul was in the race. He exhorted the Corinthians to join him. The verse doesn't su suggest that only one wins the Christian race, but that all should be running as winners. Verse 25, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. There's a price for victory, and that price is discipline, temperance, self-control. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul exhorts Timothy to compete according to the rules. In Hebrews 12.1, the writer exhorts his readers to run with endurance the race that is set before them, unencumbered by weight and free from the sin that so easily ensnares them. Here, Paul instructs the Corinthians to run with self-control. The Lord has um, been speaking to me this week about uh, getting to work on time. It may seem like a minor thing to you, but um, uh, for the sake of my coworkers, I think it makes a difference. I, I think they, um, 
I've uh, lost some credibility for the gospel by, by being chronically late to work. So um, I'm accountable to you for, for being on time at work. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. It talks, Paul, uh, Paul is talking about the durability of the prize. It's imperishable. The runners, the uh, marathon runners uh, would win a laurel of, uh, of a crown. It was, a, it was just leaves that would uh, uh, dry up and, and uh, fade away. Years ago, when we met at the Redwood Christian School, I was walking through the office and uh, I was startled by what I saw in the trash can. They had cleaned out the trophy case for Redwood Christian School. And in the two big trash cans, there were glittering silver and gold uh, trophies for, for different events that they'd won. And uh, I thought, how, how transient is that? These, these trophies are not even 20 years old and they're, they're in the trash. But uh, Paul says, your prize is imperishable. It's forever the prize for faithfulness in Christian service. We sang the hymn this morning, we thank thee for the crown of glory and of life. Tis no poor withering wreath of earth, man's prize and mortal strife, that, um, uh, that, um, that leaf crown. Instead, tis incorruptible as is the throne, the kingdom of our God and his incarnate son. That's a prize worth striving for. Paul's example, uh, he gives, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Paul doesn't ask where the finish line is. He's confident, he knows the goal. He doesn't ask for directions, he's headed to the finish on the most direct route. Imagine the, uh, the marathon runner in the lead, having to stop and uh, ask for directions. Um, which way is, uh, is the finish line from here? <laughs> He wouldn't stay in the lead for very long. But Paul was confident. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Paul wanted his every effort to count. He wasn't interested in wild swings. He wasn't satisfied with near misses. He wanted every, uh, every stroke to count. There is a danger of laxity, moral and physical. Paul said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Paul trained his body to keep himself spiritually fit. He brought his body into slavery. Slaves don't tell masters what to do. Slaves do what masters tell them to do. And my body should not be directing my mind or my, my spirit what to do. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified when the body gains ascendancy or mastery or reign over the spirit, I'm rejected or disapproved from further spiritual service. What are some of these disqualifying habits? First on the list is prayerlessness, prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is carelessness. It's um, self-reliance. It's um, pride. It's um, thinking that I can do without 
the provision that the Lord has made. Sloth or laziness, procrastination, insatiable love for leisure, for entertainment, for retirement, this disqualifies. Moral failure, men lusting, women alluring those men who lust, trying to make themselves irresistible. Pornographic indulgence, especially that which we find on the internet. Covetousness, these are uh, examples of um, habits that disqualify. We need to discipline ourselves. Bill McDonald in his commentary said the, the passage of scripture is an extremely serious one and should cause deep heart searching on the part of everyone who seeks to serve the Lord Christ. Each one should determine that by the grace of God, he will never have to learn the meaning of the word disqualified by experience. In closing, the Apostle Paul was willing to set aside those cultural comforts, his cultural comforts to reach all men with the gospel. And he was willing to exercise the discipline that was required to preach that gospel and to set aside those comforts. May we, this morning, abandon those cultural comforts, those expectations that stand in the way of proclaiming the gospel to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. May we run in such a way as to win the prize of the Lord Jesus well done in that coming day. Let's pray. Thank you again for your Apostle Paul, Lord, for the truths that you communicate by your word and uh, for the challenge that he, um, that he laid down to the Corinthians, to us as well. We pray that you might remind us through this week that we uh, are called to abandon these, um, these comforts and to, um, to be disciplined in our, our lives so that we can preach the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.